0: Episode 1817 of Effectively Wild, a baseball podcast from Fangrafts presented by our Patreon supporters. I am Dunnenberg of The Ringer, joined as always by Meg Rowley of Fangrafts. Hello, Meg. Hello. The good news, the only good news, <laughs> is that that guy who's been posting a new drawing of Mike Trout each day of the MLB lockout can keep doing that. Or maybe he's sick of that by now, so I don't know if that's good news for him or not. It's good news for us. The bad news is that we won't be seeing the real Mike Trout anytime soon, Because the lockout continues. No deal was reached by the MLB-imposed Monday deadline. No deal was reached by the MLB-imposed Tuesday deadline. Deadlines can move. And now MLB has officially canceled the first two series of the regular season and decreed that those games won't be made up, though that may be subject to bargaining. As we record on Tuesday evening, the next talks have yet to be scheduled, and so... To lament and lambast and bemoan these developments or non-developments, we are joined by our friends and my colleagues from The Ringer MLB Show and The Ringer at Large, Michael Bauman and Zach Cram. Guys, we needed to do a crossover episode because otherwise, the way things are going, I'm not sure when or if we would ever get to talk again.
1: Yeah. Well, not only that, you would have found yourself in the awkward position of having only management people on this podcast. (laughs) And so you needed Zach and me to speak for the people. And in in that capacity, I'm happy to oblige.
0: Yeah, we've got equal representation here.
2: Yeah, when you started by saying there's one good thing about this podcast episode, I thought you were going to introduce us then, but I guess not.
3: (laughs) (laughs) So you're you're two good things about the podcast episode. Mm -hmm. So he had to get the low hanging fruit out of the way, and then you could be the main event. (laughs) But we do
0: have two genuine members of the Ringer Union bargaining committee with us today to represent the Players Association standpoint. Of course, Meg and I are just mouthpieces of the owners and (laughs) Rob Manfred, as usual. Anyone who's been listening to the show for long enough knows that. But we have just listened to Manfred's press conference, we've listened to Tony Clark's press conference, at least until ESPN decided to cut it off after about one question, because I guess the Players Association is not an ESPN broadcast partner. I don't know. Anyway, how are you all feeling about the fact that games are officially postponed and or canceled?
1: I feel a sense of like giddy numbness. This has been in the works for so long. I've been anticipating this for for years and years and years. And now that it's here, I'm actually a little relieved that things seem to be in less dire straits in terms of getting the season started than I feared they could have been, Mm. which might be just a result of me being a a miserable old cuss. But it just seems surreal that this moment has finally arrived. I actually
2: agree with a lot of that, Mike. You and I were talking pre-2020 We were already making references to the lockout or strike to come in 2022, and then the 2020 season happened and the owners probably lost some money and the players lost some money. And after the 2020 season, I thought, okay, now having that experience delay to the season or a cancellation of the season is less likely just because of what happened. And maybe I should have stuck with my initial impulse because if I had, then this wouldn't necessarily be as unexpected as it now appears to be given... I'm sure we'll talk about the stalled momentum of yesterday, which maybe wasn't actually momentum, but given the long arc of this negotiation dating back half a decade,
0: it isn't a huge surprise. Right. And I don't know whether I was gullible to believe at any point in the process that this could have been avoided. But we talked last week about how my mood, my level of optimism has kind of mirrored or resembled a win expectancy chart. It's just been up and down as talks have either progressed or stopped. And as the rhetoric has changed from angry to more conciliatory, I was actually sort of surprised that Tony Clark was maybe not quite as fire and brimstone as I expected expected that he might be, given the Players Association statement that it tweeted out. He was maybe a, a little less that way than I expected him to be. I don't know if that's what you meant, Michael, by the fact that it seems like we might not be as far away from productive talks as might have been imagined. But maybe it was just me kind of buying into the idea that, oh, they'll all just kind of realize that this has to be averted no matter what at the last second. But it was starting to seem maybe like something could have come together before one of these deadlines and the fact that there was one deadline and then another deadline kind of tells you how arbitrary the deadlines were to begin with but yeah. it seemed like and you know we're parsing tweets from people who were getting leaked to from one side or the other and the tone didn't always match and so it seemed like there was a, a glimmer of hope that there could be some kind of agreement and then there wasn't so maybe We could just recap the last day or two of Rob Manfred walking between buildings and (laughs) reporters taking pictures and video of him doing so. And what was it, 13 rounds of bargaining on Monday and people making jokes about sending in a zombie runner to cut things off. But they were up late and then they were up early again And it seemed like at least some sources would have to believe that things changed, that the tenor of the conversation changed from Monday to Tuesday. But it may very well be just that the people who were leaking things on Monday were leaking things differently than the people who were leaking things on Tuesday, or at least the people who were allowing themselves to be leaked to, by which I mean Bob Nightingale.
3: (laughs) Well, before we talk about Bob, because gosh, shouldn't we do that? I think that thinking that there was some momentum was prior to yesterday not completely unreasonable, if only because the players aren't actually asking for all that much. I mean, exactly. you know, we went into yeah. these negotiations, I think, with an understanding of just how monumental a task clawing back. All of the losses that the players have suffered over the course of the last CBA would be. And while they went in and did ask for, you know, some big stuff, they've been pretty conciliatory on those issues as the negotiations have gone on. There's nothing in this that fundamentally alters the landscape all that much. If anything, it is letting them barely keep up with the pace of revenues. So if only because it seems silly to risk damage to the sport and loss of revenue over such a small amount of money it struck me that yeah maybe we would get a deal because the owners could go in see what was being proposed and think we've won we've won this negotiation we've we haven't conceded anything we were unwilling to concede we got expanded playoffs we got an international draft we got all of this stuff and their you know unwillingness to see it that way I think, you know, we were starting to get that telegraphed over the last couple of weeks, but I don't think it was unreasonable to think that this could have worked out because the earth didn't shake all that much, right? There's no radical change in the players' proposals here.
2: But I guess there's a reason why none of the four of us is an owner because we all see it that way. But we're not. That's on the that only side.
3: reason, though, because otherwise, you know. <laughs> yeah,
1: like what I keep coming back to, and this has been repeated over and over in many different places. But you look at the asks, and this is why, you know, the the momentum from last night is what it is. It may or may not have been real, but the numbers just aren't that far apart anymore in the grand scheme of things. Once the union came off of a lot of their more aggressive super two proposals and the the owners came off of the 50% flat CBT penalty, like there are numbers and compromises that can, can be moved here. So I just don't know what there is to cancel a season over at this point which is not where i was, you know, based on what was publicly available a week ago. I think that there's still a lot of the bad feeling is still there from the player side and you know, a lot of the problems they set out to solve wouldn't be solved by by these proposals, but in terms of just getting baseball started again, I'm feeling more optimistic than than i have in a while.
0: There's been a lot of talk about the pace of the talks and the lack of progress or the lack of engagement and MLB going 43 days after imposing the lockout before actually opening up the talks again. And then, you know, what was it? Nine, 10 days in a row of bargaining right before the deadline. There were a lot of comps to like, you know, the student trying to turn in the term paper the night before it's due, that kind of thing. We've all been in that scenario, but this seems less like Procrastination than a tactic, right? I mean, this is what they wanted. I got the sense that they wanted to wait until the last moment, until this deadline that they made up, basically, and then to have it come down to that last second and hope that the players would break. I mean, that's my sense of what they wanted to happen here. This wasn't just like an accident. This was the design, as far as I can tell, right? Just to add that time pressure and have it be right up against the last date where you could possibly have an agreement in order to start the season on time, hoping that the players would say, okay, fine, we roll over and accept whatever you want. And that didn't happen. And I don't think there was any reason to expect that to happen, given how unified the players seem. But that seems to me like that was in the cards all along.
1: I don't think it's a tactic. I think that's just how the negotiations going to work. If you've got nothing, and I said this the last time I was on here in the fall, there's no pressure to make a deal, particularly a deal that you're not thrilled with if there's not a deadline coming up. So this, you know, and a lot of people are going after, well, Rob Manfred said his non-answer to the why did it take 43 days for a proposal from the the owners. And I think that's about, it's still a valid question, but- he said, you know, we've done a lot of work over the last nine days. These nine days were really the only time that anybody was ever going to get serious because that's what the deadline was. That's when mm-hmm. if we don't get a deal, then something bad happens. And up until that point, if you've got months or, or weeks of lead time, you can say, well, we're going to be patient. We're going to wait a little longer for the other side to blink. And now there are consequences for not blinking. And instead of just we don't like this deal, so we're not going to so we're not going to accept it. It's there's a, a penalty. For both sides, for not coming to an agreement, and both of them, you know, and I think the players rightly have said that we're willing to accept this penalty in exchange for, you know, in, instead of taking a deal that doesn't work for us. But the time pressure and the procrastination, like elements of this timing, I think, are, are a deliberate tactic. But the fact that stuff only picked up in the past couple days—it's just how negotiations work. I agree with what you said,
2: Mike. But I want to point to something Ben said, which is that the owners seem to hope that the players would break, and I would go further than that without delving too far into owner psychology although i have th- been thinking a lot about it the owners didn't just hope that the players would break they seemed to expect yeah. the players to break and and that was probably based on winning the last few cba negotiations right like if you get through 2016 and the one before that and the one before that and very much win by you know, getting the financial incentives you want while giving up a third seat on a spring training bus, then you probably think it's going to happen again at the next negotiation. And I think they were taken aback by the unified front. Even if we could see it coming, the owner's Had prior experience where it just didn't manifest in the same way. And the analogy that I'm sorry you didn't use, Mike, is it kind of reminds me of the 1980 Miracle on Ice, where the Soviet Union had won the four previous gold medals. They beat the US badly in a a tune up exhibition. And then they get into the all important Miracle on Ice game. And all of a sudden, the US scores two goals in the first period. And the Soviet coach, who had expected the Americans to roll over panics and pulls his goalie who's the best goalie in the world and all of a sudden ruins everything and maybe the uh, Rob Manfred is Tikhanov here and I don't know who Trediak is in this analogy and we can go back to baseball in a second but it, it's just an example of can we? <laughs>
0: Will we ever well we're not to? going to because I'm going to
1: take Zach's absolutely bizarre historical analogy think- in which, in which the-, the owners are the communists but first of that, all that is a fair
2: critique but the owners had won the last several negotiations and fully expected the opposition to roll over and when the opposition didn't roll over they they didn't know what to do with their pre-planned strategy
3: wouldn't a more apt analogy be that the union is the crew of the red October Bowman. <laughs> so I was actually
1: going to pull a different Olympic ice hockey analogy <laughs> that in terms of expecting the union to break, I think that the union has taken that specific lesson to heart from the previous couple CBAs. And one thing that like everything is over and over and over the players are unified. Everybody's communicating. Everybody's motivated. Everybody's mobilized. And that's something that you know, if you want to look at the, the, most successful collective player action in North American sports over the last ten years. It's the U.S. Women's Olympic Hockey Team who went on strike in advance of the the World Championships a few years ago, and that only succeeded because they got the entire player pool in line and had them unified and completely on board. And I think I've told this story on on this pod before, so I won't won't repeat it, but or won't repeat any more of it than I have already. But <laughs> the only weapon that that the players have is withholding their labor and their, their solidarity and they seem to have that covered. So it's no, you know, it shouldn't be a surprise to, to anybody, most of all the owners that they're meeting stiffer resistance this time around.
3: Well, and I think that it's also useful that they had the galvanizing event that was 2020. We've talked about this. I can't remember who amongst you I have talked about this with, so probably <laughs> all of you. But I think that that year and the way that the league and the owners conducted themselves as the the union and the league were negotiating the return to play was really illuminating for a lot of these guys, especially the ones who had not been particularly active in the union previously and maybe didn't have a, a very strong sense of solidarity that there was very little care being directed their way on the part of ownership and a real Willingness to sacrifice as sort of as many games as they needed to in order to get what they wanted from a concession perspective. So I think that Manfred kind of underestimated the degree of solidarity and particularly that event in clarifying for a lot of these players, the priorities of the league, which are not about their well-being or compensation or the health or safety. So I think that there has been a lot of really good recent work on the part of the union to foster that, but there's nothing like an event like 2020 to really sort of throw into specific relief where the fault lines are between these two parties.
1: And in that respect, how big a strategic blunder does that look like, the right. way the league handled the those negotiations two years ago? Because right. I absolutely think that was a radicalizing factor for a lot of players.
2: And it's worth noting, I think, how we talk about the two sides, right? Like we talk about the players and how there are veterans and youngsters and they're asking for buckets of money for different groups of players. But they, as we say, seem more unified than they have in some time, whereas with the owners, we, even on this pod now, are, are grouping them all in one group and assuming that they all have the same interest. But that isn't true, right? Steve Cohen is probably not happy with the CBT thresholds, given that the Mets 2022 payroll is already pushing over $250 million. So we don't really have the, the access into the owner's room to know which owners are pushing which proposals. But I imagine that some of the intransigence and some of the delay here has to do with disagreements on the owner side with different parties wanting different things. Something that uh, Jonathan Judge, who's been on this pod before, pointed out today is that baseball's smallest markets don't seem to want to spend any more money themselves, but they also don't want to be outspent by the bigger markets. And That just seems to be an an intractable problem when some of the owners might be okay with some of the players' proposals, but when you need 23 to sign off on everything, that isn't going to work out if Pittsburgh and some of the other markets like that aren't going to
1: sign off. I mean, that was a big problem in 1994, too. But to to that point, I think that might be one of the reasons that Steve Cohen is not one of the more popular owners. He's not one of the people who's going out there and representing the owners in the in their negotiations. Because for all his other faults, and as much as he should be in jail, he actually wants to win, which makes him probably a minority among among owners. So if that's his his view, and he wants to get the and you know he wants to hire CBT cap, he doesn't have the votes to to push back against that because at least two thirds or, or three quarters of the owners will probably. Be like, okay, we could just all spend less money now.
0: Yeah, and you all know me. I'm not the most emotional man. (laughs) I'm, I'm not prone to fiery fits of rage, but this is really pretty infuriating that this is happening because it's a small group of people who are denying all of the rest of us baseball. And everyone wants to watch baseball and the players want to play baseball. And a lot of people, to some extent us, but even more others, livelihoods depend on baseball And baseball is not going to be played. Major League Baseball is not going to be played at that time. Just because this small group of people who have been doing extraordinarily well and would continue to do extraordinarily well under the terms of even the player's proposal are digging in their heels and saying, no, we won't cede any ground and are blowing it up for everyone. And we all want to watch Shohei Otani. That is a subject that I am <laughs> Some of us about. more than others. But... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but name whatever exciting young player you want to see, and whether it's Soto or a Acuna or on and on or all of the exciting teams that are out there, all of the players that are just sort of in limbo out on the market, not knowing where they'll play. It's so frustrating because even if a deal were done quickly and there's no real indication that that will definitely be the case, the season is already marred by this because it's going to start late under the best of circumstances and you're going to have probably some kind of compressed spring training and then who knows how quickly all of the free agents out there will still be able to sign and what shape they'll be able to be in. Of course, the Players Association is going to be operating its own Camps as it did a few years ago when there were so many unsigned free agents left at this stage. But who knows how that affects people's health and people's preparation for the season. And we're probably going to be deprived of some games in any scenario. And for no good reason, really. I mean, just a few immensely wealthy people who are going to continue to be immensely wealthy and are just holding the entire sport hostage and this occupation, this entertainment, that we all love, that we're all looking forward to. We can't have it just because they won't give any ground, and they gave a little bit of ground. There was some movement toward the middle, which was really a first as opposed to before when it was just we won't budge on anything of importance except in some small cosmetic way so that we can give the appearance of being bargaining in good faith here. There has been more significant movement in the recent days, which is kind of encouraging, but there's just no real reason for this to happen. And you can't even call it a a cell phone. Maybe it is a cell phone, but it's a cell phone that affects all of us. It has consequences for the sport, possibly long-term, but certainly short-term. And I don't know whether this will be disastrous or not. We did an episode and an interview about that recently. People are making the point that, well, this is different from 94 and baseball isn't as popular and there's all kinds of competing entertainment products out there and people are already sick of things because of the shortened 2020 season. And all of the war of words that went on at that time. But even if you think that fans would eventually come back and that revenues would bounce back, which of course is the owner's primary concern here, it's going to do damage to the sport, at least in the short term. And it's just not benefiting anyone really, except this small, small group that hopes that eventually they will be able to buy another yacht more easily or whatever it is, whatever real difference you could even measure in their net worth as a result of holding the line here.
2: Also worth noting that the last time we actually lost games because of a labor battle, it wasn't an agreement between the players and owners that ended it. It was a federal judge who is now a Supreme Court justice who Mm -hmm. ended it and they, they had to play another couple years without a CBA in place. So that does not seem like an optimal end game here. That would take a long time, and it would lead to a lot more mess. It would lead all of us to not only have to learn about business, but also the law, which is not where I refuse. I, <laughs> I refuse to know
1: anything about business or the law.
3: <laughs> That's why you're friends with me. Yeah, you don't, have, you don't have to know about business. You can just be like, oh, Meg.
1: So I want to go back to the point that that Ben was making, only because it's specifically the the. Topic and main thrust of the column that was just published on uh, the Ringer dot com, uh, which is a good website. But we think about this as di- as dividing pieces of the pie. This is not an issue of there are ten pieces and owners want seven and the players want six and they can't agree on 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 a number. But the owners are costing themselves money by doing this by. By fighting the players over tens of millions of dollars, not even that in in a lot of cases, sometimes it's just millions of dollars for some of these proposals when by canceling games by like there's something they could get to buy a 14 team playoff from the union and that's worth hundreds of millions of dollars. They're willing to take less. Just to put a finger in the eye of the union. And so when you look at this, look at their behavior from any kind of like, you know, rational or game theory perspective, they're not behaving in a way to maximize their own financial interests. This is, there's no other way to read this apart from this is emotional for a lot of these owners. And it's about putting the union in their place. And it's about, you know, it's the juxtaposition of these very grandiose ideas, these huge amounts of money and very small, very Petty grievances in some of these cases, and and that's why we're losing the season. And the frustrating thing, to the point Ben was making, is there's nothing you or I or, or you know, there's nothing we can do about it. Even the the nominal higher power and and regulatory interests, like they can't save the season. Governmental processes would take months. It, right. we, we'd get a deal before that, and so it's just frustrating to live under. And I'll put a dollar in the swear jar under late capitalism where this is, you know, this is just how the way things work and, and everything's going to get more expensive and slightly worse over time. And there's not a whole lot that that we, the consumers, the observers, the people who are invested in this emotionally can do about it, let alone the the workers who actually give this industry any value.
3: yeah. <laughs> well and i think the frustrating part is that we've had this we've had this idea maybe amongst ourselves that you know all it takes is like an honest accounting of how little difference there really is and how little per team it costs right if we can put it in terms of how many you know flyer contracts on a reliever this is per team then the the sort of stakes of this, at least from a dollar's perspective, will be made stark and something will make the owners go, aha. But th- they're so far removed from either the impact of that feedback directly in terms of it making them like feel something in their tender human hearts or the impact that a, a mass exodus of fans from gate revenues could actually cause because of how many other ancillary revenue streams are that you really end up feeling kind of stymied like I've had a lot of people ask me well what can I do and it's like I don't know how much they really care about you canceling your MLB TV like they care but do they care that much I don't know man like probably not they're making that money up, up in you know prop bets as soon as we have a season again so it can make you feel to Michael's point very helpless even in positions like ours where we have some impact on what the public narrative is around this stuff it's like once they get in the room none of that matters
2: saying that they're going to make up that money and prop bets as soon as the season starts (laughs) is the most depressing thing said on the podcast super super cursed
3: (laughs) sentence to be clear but it will take 20 minutes for that money to just flow back into the coffers of the league because there are so many ways that they can make money And, you know, I I think you're right, Ben, that there will be people who say, I'm taking a break or I'm not going to go to the ballpark this year or whatever, but I don't think that the exodus will be sufficiently large for it to feel like pressure. And even if it does, the next time we do one of these, they're not going to remember any of that crap. It's going to be five years from now. We're all going to be living under domes and terrified that dinosaurs are back. Like, we're going to have other problems.
1: (laughs) And it's not the expressing the amount of money in terms of like reliever contracts. It's not like showing how much the owners are, are squeezing players. It's not like that's not an argument worth making or, or work worth showing. It's but let's say let's play this out to the very end. Let's say that public opinion swings behind the players militantly and we've got people boycotting and we've got people burning effigies outside of Tom Ricketts's house. Like like Beggs said, they can't be threatened by that. There's nothing that that we the public, their consumers, or they, the MLBPA, have to threaten the owners with that can really put a scare in them. And, you know, that's sort of a, a, personally, I find that as like a societal issue to be more concerning than having to hear about prop bets is as distasteful as I find some of that. But it's, that's, that's the really bummer part of this for me. It's Like, if they come to a deal by the end of, and start the season by May 1st, I think everybody's going to forget about it by the World Series. But just this is just another reminder of, of the forces that that govern the society we live in. And it just sucks to have that thrown in your face all the time. Yep.
2: The uh, 2011-12 NBA season was a bit shorter than usual, but not terribly so. They had a normal finals and everything. And really, the only reason that season the matters... The Sixers
1: were good that year. That's they, the only reason I remember that season. <laughs> the <laughs>
2: 8-1 upset, but... That season is basically only important historically now because it messes up my data whenever I'm writing some sort <laughs> of historical basketball piece. And we all are familiar with that in baseball, of course, because of 2020 and, and 1994 and 1995. But I think if, like Mike says, this is solved by May 1st, May 15th, then it won't have as deleterious a long term impact. But I just wonder what the path toward that agreement looks like at this point, because there isn't really a precedent for this specific scenario at this point.
0: Yeah, I don't know how many studies I've done in the past where I have either excluded certain seasons or noted in the text, excluding 94, 95, and 81, the shortened seasons. Well, now we can add 2022 to the list, presumably. That just hit me since
1: the strike was such a good historical (laughs) mark for like the start of of (laughs) normal baseball. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my. That sucks. Yep.
0: I can still enjoy watching baseball and even covering baseball and bringing attention to it, knowing that that attention is enriching the owners who are basically doing their best to run the sport into the ground. As long as I'm getting something out of it, I can live with that because uh, almost any entertainment option we choose these days, we're aware that it is enriching someone who is probably terrible in some way. That much I can live with. But I think What is extra frustrating about this is that the owners have put people like us even, people who most want baseball to come back and have things at stake even personally and professionally in its coming back, they've put us in the position at times of rooting for it not to come back because of the circumstances that it would have to come back under. I mean, there have been times when MLB's last deal was dangling out there and they barely budged on anything and it would have made everything worse where I'm just thinking, well, they shouldn't take that deal, right? And I don't even want them to take that deal, not only because it would be unfair in some way, but because it would make the sport worse in some way that would affect my enjoyment of it. And so here we are and we're getting... Getting emails from listeners too. And we have very devoted listeners who love baseball a lot. And they are saying things like I don't want the Players Association to accept these offers, I don't want baseball to come back. Because of what would happen to happen for it to come back while the owners are being so intractable. And I think that's the worst part of it is that at times I've been sitting there thinking, well, of course, I want there to be baseball, but I want there to be baseball in such a way that I can feel good about it and still enjoy it. And it's been hard to know whether both of those things can happen or whether they're mutually exclusive. And also like rooting against baseball coming back. I don't know if that even is productive in any way. For one thing, it's like spiteful almost. It's like this is what I have now is like hoping the owners don't get their way instead of getting to enjoy actual great baseball players playing baseball. It's like a fan of a team that is eliminated from the playoffs and is now enjoying just being a spoiler and beating other teams. Like that's not as fun as actually getting the thing yourself. I disagree. (laughs) Super (laughs) fun. I have
1: two comments. Spoken as a true
0: Foley fan, I guess. But
1: (laughs) Yeah, I was going to say like (laughs) – One of you guys on the pod last year asked me if I was okay with booing my own players, (laughs) and I was like, "So, first of all, I would encourage you to embrace spite as just a a general principle." But I'm not upset by the fact that we're rooting under these very limited circumstances, rooting against baseball. As, as you put it, I think it's just a realization that, like, even if you love a thing, how the thing is made is important, and sometimes it's okay to have less of a thing if it means that the thing is done in you know, a more ethical, equitable manner. Like I thought about this a lot when we were talking about restarting restarting society as it was d- during the pandemic. Like I'm okay going without the, the stuff I love temporarily if it means that we can make the world a better place. And I think this is a, a very small, low stakes example of that. But, you know, I'm... Okay, missing a few games if it means that the game is going to be more competitive, and you know whether the current proposals on the table can achieve that is is a different question. But you know, I, I think it's okay to to have momentary disruptions in in, in pursuit of of loftier societal or or even yeah. just petty industry-based goals.
0: Yeah, I see what you're saying. On the other hand, it's also extra galling that I don't think the owners really want baseball to be played right now either. And so if I root against baseball being played in these circumstances, I'm almost playing into the owner's hands as well because they don't seem to care if the season starts now. They seem to be fine with waiting a month or two months or whatever, the coldest, lowest attendance months when kids are in school and their profit margins are not quite as wide as they will be later in the year, like the players are probably the ones who would be paying the stiffer penalty at least for a while, right? Because as long as the owners get the playoffs and the revenue that comes with that and who knows whether expanded playoffs will still be on the table or not after all of this. I assume that they still will be in some form, but we could talk about that. But if we miss a month or two of the season and then we come back and have expanded playoffs, I think the owners would probably be just fine with that, right? I mean, they may even prefer that. And you said you weren't spiteful. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. Like, It's not even spiteful to hope that baseball doesn't come back right away because that might be just what the owners want. And there's no guarantee that waiting a month or two or an entire season or however long it takes to resolve this would actually lead to a better agreement. You hope it would, but it could be that eventually the players would be the ones to crack first. I kind of doubt that that would be the case, but that is a possibility too. I mean, you could lose an entire season and then end up back where you were before
3: yeah so here's a question that i have i'm 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 trying to decide what i think about this so the way that the the commissioner talked about this these first two series these 91 games that are off the calendar now he said they've been canceled and the league doesn't have the intent of rescheduling them and In the press conference that the Players Association held, which was, again, carried only ever so briefly on the networks that you might expect, their expectation is that they will ask for compensation and have those canceled games rescheduled. The longer this goes, the harder the restart becomes in some ways because a bigger chunk of the revenue pie that that cancellation constitutes and you imagine that they're not going to like say we'll walk away from that demand right they get to collectively bargain the length of the season so how much do you think the the union's insistence on being made whole for those games whether in the form of playing them or just having compensation for them is going to impact the speed with which the owners are sort of interested in coming back to the table because this was a huge sticking point in 2020 and we had a pandemic to blame for it right it was like This wasn't necessarily the owners being, you know, spiteful entirely, right? We were trying to keep people from getting COVID in that year.
2: At the very least, it certainly adds just another item to the bargaining table. Like, this isn't like apples to apples, but we saw in the last 48 hours, all of a sudden the shift was under discussion again and pitch clocks were (laughs) under discussion again. And I was like, I thought we were focused on money at this point. So I think it's a, a useful reminder of how many items still remain open in bargaining and especially when they're all being packaged together like if ultimately there comes to be some sort of deal where the union and the owners agree on CBT thresholds but then that is tied to the revenue from these lost games then that's not really an agreement on CBT thresholds because you need the whole package to work so I think it adds a complication that didn't exist when they were at the table last night and earlier this morning.
0: So it sounds like, based on some comments that came out after ESPN stopped carrying the press conference, Tony Clark said, The game has suffered damage for a while now. The game had changed. The game has been manipulated. Players have been commoditized in a way that's really hard to explain in the grand scheme. And Bruce Meyer, the negotiator for the PA, said, We've also been clear and consistent that there are major issues on which we're very far apart. That hasn't changed. There have been and still are major issues. And so I guess the question is now that even this kind of fictional deadline is behind us, There just is no deadline now, and every day and every week that's missed just eats into the season, but there isn't really a a hard date that you can point to and say it has to be done by then. So I guess the question is what forces them – well, let's hope they come back to the table sometime soon. In a few days, they regroup, but after that, I guess, is the urgency that was clearly there over the last couple days still going to be there? Can you – keep that level of intensity up knowing that you're losing games every day that this goes by or after a certain amount of time does it just kind of blend together and it's like well we're already pot committed to this thing so we might as well keep going
1: yeah I don't think you can keep that intensity up which is why I think it's a good thing that like they're retreating to their separate corners and they're going to both owners and the the PA are going to regroup and come back at this with sort of fresh eyes hopefully soon I mean it seems like Neither side is really itching to to delay the season uh, any longer than necessary. So I, I hope they'll come back to bargaining soon. But eventually, the lockout will generate a, me- a momentum of its own, and you're going to feel like you've lost. Like, this is the big motivating factor, is that every, day's, every day this goes on now, both sides are going to lose gobs of money. And so right. they're going to start putting that into their mental calculus. Whether they put it into a balance sheet or not, it's going to weigh on them emotionally. And they're gonna feel like, okay, well, are the gains I'm getting back in the CBA gonna be enough for missing thirty days worth of ticket sales or thirty days worth of paychecks? And that's when things could, I think, start to get contentious and really ugly. So, you know, I, I think there's been more progress in the last seventy-two hours than than I really expected there to be at this point. But if they there's gonna be a point where there's gonna be an inflection point and I don't know where it is. It could be Two weeks from now, it could be three months from now, where just the, the path dependence of this is going to weigh on the situation so heavy, and it's going to make it harder for, for a deal to come together.
3: I think you're right, but I'm just, uh, the part that concerns me is, aren't we there now? Like, the difference in any given year over the course of this CPA is like 200 million bucks.
1: No, I don't think we're there now. I, I don't think we're close to there now. I think that, like, there's been so, how many games did they lose in 2020? and over like over a whole lot less money than is at stake right now. I think that like there's a commitment for for both owners and the PA to show that they mean business. And that means like you know we mean this so much, you know we we're so committed we're willing to lose games. How many games that is is probably different for each side and under what circumstances, but I don't think that the fear of that right now I think the the amount of money lost matters less than the principle of the thing for everybody involved. And yeah, you know, I don't think that's necessarily unhealthy. Hmm.
0: So it seemed like there was movement on some important issues, and there's still large gaps when it comes to the bonus pool for players early in their careers, and there's still a pretty large gap when it comes to the CBT, although MLB did finally back off its demand to make the penalties for going over the payroll tax threshold steeper. So that was a positive development.
2: Yeah, but in in their latest proposal, the first three years all have the same threshold. Right. Like, yes. right. like they think nobody really. Realizes inflation exists on the union side,
0: <laughs> right? Yeah, and you know the the salary minimum, I guess, is somewhere in the middle-ish between the two. What was it? MLB's latest proposal is seven hundred thousand. The PA is at seven seventy-five, something like that.
1: And there's, a, I don't think it's that far away. I think it was seven hundred versus seven twenty-five, and unless I read something wrong, and, but there's a difference in how much it goes up every year.
0: Right. That's the the difference, too, is that these things don't seem to escalate and keep pace with inflation, let alone revenue. And... What else? I mean, the PA earlier backed off its attempt, very brief attempt to try to extend free agency to more players, and then has also backed off its attempts to increase the Super Two pool and, and get players to arbitration sooner. Although so, that
3: backing off seemed, at least in the way that it was initially reported by Evandrelic, as if it were contingent on them getting the concessions they want around CBT thresholds. So uh-huh, that's an uh-huh. important thing to note.
0: Right. So none of this stuff is settled, and then. There were other things that, as Zach said, just came into play in in the last minute here just about Manfred wanting to be able to impose some of these changes to the game on the field without waiting a year to do so. And generally, I'm with him on a pitch clock, and I'm kind of with the league when it comes to changing some things that the players have not been in favor of changing – but even so, I would not want them to be able to do that by fiat in 45 days if that's what they were asking because that's just not enough notice. So I don't think that would be great. And, of course, the Players Association didn't respond well to that either. And then the shift suddenly entered the chat and banning the shift at the last second there. And We then, were so close. <laughs> the yeah, fun- the funniest, funniest one
2: it. was alongside the shift and pitch counts was bigger bases
3: yes and (laughs) like
2: i think bigger bases is a a fun idea if it increases stolen bases sure but it is funny to imagine like negotiating over tens if not hundreds of millions of dollars in gap over five years and then all of a sudden you're like hey want to make the bases two inches bigger like that's going to strike a deal
0: (laughs) right
1: Yeah. yeah yeah But this, this stuff's in every CBA, yeah. right? Like how much yeah. like, you know, we negotiated over like signage, you know, bathroom signage and stuff. And
2: I, I agree. It's just like the fact that that's being thrown in at the end as like alongside all of these other items. I guess when we did it, we kind of squared away everything else first. So it just yeah. left money for the end, which it seemed like MLB was doing. And we were just going to ignore the on field matters this time around, but
0: Manfred had other plans. (laughs) I
1: mean, working conditions covers a wide variety of topics, if if that wasn't clear before.
0: Yeah. And then, of course, there's the playoff expansion. And either way, we lose. (laughs) I think, at least as people who are generally anti-playoff expansion, it's going to be expanded. It's just a question of of how much. And the Players Association is sticking to 12 teams. The league is pushing for 14. It seemed that they had agreed for now on 12, although again, nothing is signed yet. And that was when Bob Nightingale briefly came to the fore because... uh, well, he reported that there seemed to be a compromise on the 12-team matter, which was not wrong necessarily, but he also made it seem as if these sides were pretty close on other issues and that a deal was uh, getting closer, and that obviously didn't happen. And maybe that tells you something about his sources, but he became the main character of baseball Twitter there even more than he usually is for a few hours. And people were saying, oh, this is the redemption of Bob Nightingale. He is out there. He's going to break the news of the lock. Out, ending while all the other reporters were sitting there silently not tweeting, except for pictures of the sides walking back and forth. And uh, as it turns out, maybe he got a little bit ahead of himself there.
1: It was almost literary. Like, it, it was so perfectly, like, the perfect pay off to to years of build up just absolutely incredible you know one man holding the the torch out in midnight as the two sides are going together and also becoming farther apart like
3: i'm sitting in my living room yelling kiss game of thrones wishes
1: it was that well plotted out i'm just just in awe
0: right yeah
2: this is a bit navel gazy but i think nightingale aside i have been struck by the tone of some of the national reporters like obviously mike and i are going to think that the owners are in the wrong here but to see the columns from folks like jeff passan and they they radicalized ken rosenthal yeah to to Mm -hmm. see his column and and the kind of uniformity among national media types to blame manfred and the owners again as we've been talking about i don't know if any of that really matters to the owners i suspect it doesn't but it is a shift in how matters of labor have been talked about this, yeah. particularly in baseball i wasn't around to follow the 1994 strike coverage <sighs> but <laughs> we get it you're young <laughs> but i i know that wasn't the case back then so yeah. i i get like a very very thin silver lining but it's been nice to see from that perspective yeah i think
3: that's a real silver lining. I mean, this is going to make me sound like the reformed, you know, former poli sci PhD that I was. But like, I think that the import for this stuff is helping people understand the value of organized labor writ large. And one of the big challenges that that folks have is they're trying to build and foster solidarity with people who make a lot less money than major league baseball players do, at least the ones who are up in and stick in the majors for a while is helping them understand that the, the sort of cause and thrust is common. And I think that even if it doesn't end up changing things in the room at the table, having, you know, the, the national media be able to say, no, the, the fault here lies very You know, obviously, with the commissioner and with ownership, has value societally beyond just whatever ends up happening with this particular CBA and having it expressed in those terms around a thing that people like, I think has real value. I know that we live in a little echo chamber and that, you know, every average fan is not sitting there saying the owner is, you know, down with capital. (laughs) But But a lot more of them, I think, are reckoning with the reality of this labor force being underappreciated and undercompensated relative to the revenue that they bring in. And that has value.
1: And this is something that I think, I don't know how insulated the players are from this, but like people, not Zach, who was you came out of the birthing chamber 30 minutes ago but the other three of us have like we all graduated from college in the middle of the the great recession which is part of the reason that at least i went to grad school which was a huge mistake but like the but people our age you know, who have that experience who didn't come up through like the keep your real world stuff out of my my sports like 800 word gamer newspaper type of thing which you know i think Describes us, but also, you know, maybe somebody like Hannah Kaiser, who's been on the ground covering this stuff the whole way, like getting those outside perspectives as opposed to just people who just generate scoops and, and regurgitate rhetoric and, and have been trained to think about the game in the world a certain way they're just calling it everybody's calling this the way that their view of the world has has trained them to see it and i think like having a more a better rounded more holistic view of the world is is a good thing and and i think you know for the most part our readers and listeners are smart enough to to pick up on that and pick up on a lot more nuance than maybe they would have been given credit for 25 years ago.
0: Can't write
2: gamers without
0: any games. (laughs) That's right. Desperate times. That's why you're a full-time basketball writer now. (laughs) Anyone want to
2: read about the Celtics? Unique coverage <laughs> of pick and roll defense. I got you.
1: Oh, I yeah. do not want to read about the Celtics. Will you just for... write
3: about Ja, because I I've decided I'm a Grizzlies fan and um, I you know, while everyone else was watching the, the Twitter to see what was going on last night, I was just watching like John ja Morant be the coolest human being alive for like, you know, a couple minutes. So do you think yeah, it would so help yeah.
2: the players effort if Ja Morant dunked over Rob Manfred?
3: <laughs> I think I have a an inappropriate answer to that question. No, I I mean, I think that it would be humbling in a way that might actually make him more intransigent. <laughs> <laughs> well. So
1: since we're talking about basketball, we can talk about James Harden. And since we're talking about James Harden, we're talking about beards. And can we talk about Tony Clark's lockout beard? He looks yes, great. It's, yeah. it's incredible. Yeah. Like, whatever else the lockout brings, I'm so grateful we got to see that. It's immaculate. He looks yeah. like if God looks like that, I'm going to be really happy when I die.
0: <laughs> yeah. He looked like he should be doing some smiting with that beard. Yeah. And he, he wasn't. He was fairly soft-spoken, but it is really immaculately groomed. It's got like a really sharp line and separation and the color also. It's like the snow white beard. Stark and white. Then, oh, right. Man. And then the, the mustache part is not. It's mostly a different color, which is very striking. And uh, he doesn't have a whole lot of hair up top, obviously. So you have a ton of hair on the the bottom of his head and none on the top. And it's just really a a great look, especially with the spectacles that go with it. So yeah, I'm in favor of more screen time for Tony Clark, just hopefully not for these circumstances. But
2: Let's pick a different sport again, hockey. Do you think (laughs) that Tony Clark will continue to grow that beard out as a lockout beard, like a playoff beard in the NHL?
0: (laughs) It'll just get bushier and bushier. But he's,
1: He's got plenty of contacts within the PA. I remember years ago having a very long conversation with Archie Bradley about beard maintenance. So (laughs) Tony Clark has plenty of people to go to for advice. Not that it seems like he needs it. It's just, it's exquisite. It's the only thing in baseball in months that has made me happy.
3: Yeah, he, he looked very sharp. He looked very <laughs> this sharp. This is a,
0: a symptom of baseball dying, is that baseball writers are pivoting to being basketball writers. We're pivoting to <laughs> talking about hockey and facial hair. That's all we've got to go on these days. And speaking of hockey, by the way, I was going to ask this because we saw Bryce Harper Instagram message the Yomiuri Giants on Monday. And technically, players are allowed to go play wherever they want, right? In international leagues, that's something that happened during the NHL's work stoppage in 2004-2005 when there was no season. Players went and played internationally. There's no It happened that. in 13-14 too. Right, okay. So there's there's no way that happens here, is there? Would you have any interest in doing that? Because I feel like I obviously would want to play, like players like playing baseball and it's a pretty good way to stay in shape and also make some money potentially for some of them. doesn't Necessarily make a huge difference for Bryce Harper, but it would for others. But I mean, there's the problem of, you know, limits on international players in those international leagues, which would prevent most of them from doing that.
1: And there aren't, there almost aren't any leagues to go to, which is a a big issue. Like, where are you going to find what you like? You would find something that we would recognize as like major league hockey in basically every country in Europe. Mm -hmm. And there just isn't that equivalent of, of jobs out there. If we're going to talk about an alternative form of of lockout hockey, what I would like to see is the equivalent of the Wayne Gretzky's 99 All-Stars from the 94 lockout, uh, where he just got a bunch of superstars together and they barnstormed yeah. around Europe playing local All-Star teams. That'd be like, fun. I would love to see Mike Trout's 27 All-Stars going yeah. on tour. I said this on Twitter yesterday. like. Hey, there are 40 vacant minor league stadiums now. I have no idea what happened to the teams that they used to play there, but it's not like there's any shortage of of professional quality baseball stadium where they could go play games or do a home run derby for charity. I think if this lockout goes on, yeah, that's that'll be something fun to to do to kill the time and keep the players in the public eye.
0: It'd be like that that pickup game during 2020, right, when the, the season hadn't started yet. And I guess at the time they were probably breaking pandemic <laughs> protocols and, and social distancing and such. It was so,
3: Arizona. I guarantee you they were not.
0: Yeah. So, so that maybe wasn't the best. But otherwise, it was kind of cool to see them play a Sandlot pickup style game. And yeah, like if you went to NPB, I mean – There's an injury risk, I guess, whatever you do, but also like you'd be displacing some NPB player in theory, and you'd obviously be a mercenary who was only there until the lockout ended. And so that wouldn't be the best maybe. But if you just barnstormed and entertained people and also remind them what they're missing and build some goodwill probably for the players' side, that'd be fun.
1: I also say, like, international travel, like, even now that we've pretended the pandemic is over, yeah. is way more complicated now than it was the last time the NHL locked out its players. So,
2: mm-hmm.
1: you know, it's, as fun as it would be to, to see Bryce Harper, who's a, a big Vegas Golden Knights fan, keeping yeah. the, the hockey theme going, um, mm-hmm. seeing him play for the Yomiuri Giants, I, I'm not going to hold my breath on any name players going to Asia.
2: Yeah, You say that, but Darren Williams in the, the NBA lockout a decade ago, he was an active all-star in the prime of his career, making eight figures, and he went and signed with a Turkish club with a clause in his contract that if the NBA lockout ended, that he would be able to leave and come back to the NBA. He ended up playing like a dozen games in Turkey and was so good and, and famous that they retired his number after just a dozen games. So maybe Bryce could. Darren Williams was an all-star.
0: Yeah. Well, there's always indie ball. although I guess most of the domestic Indie Leagues are partnered with MLB now. I don't know if that complicates things. But I think it was briefly at least a fun night on baseball Twitter in a gallows humor kind of way on Monday because, A, there seemed to be some momentum, and everyone was watching this at the same time, and it was sort of absurd because you had Walk Watch being the new Hug Watch (laughs) that you get at the trade deadline, and it's like... (laughs) <laughs> Dan Halem and Rob Manfred and whoever, Dick Monfort, walking Morgan from this place sword. to that place. <laughs> right, yes. <laughs> but the fact that we were all actually engaged in something at the same time, that kind of reminded me, hey, sports can be fun when they are being played, and it's a good collective activity, and it's a whole lot more fun to watch games than to watch Rob Manfred walk across a parking lot, ultimately to no end. But when we were all watching that, and <laughs> just the inherent silliness of it, it really against the backdrop of, you know, what Rob Minford would describe as the disastrous loss of games, even though he didn't go to great lengths to prevent it, seemingly. That was a weird mood and atmosphere. And then, of course, you had Nightingale just bringing the whole thing to a head, as you already talked about. But that made me wish for actual baseball that Mm is more fun than just watching people walk across parking lots. And, you know, other than that, and I, I guess like this is a boom time for the photographers, who've taken pictures of baseballs with (laughs) locks and chains around them. So great that those continue to get a ton of use. But other than that, not a ton of upside here. There was a bit of other news on Monday that I don't know whether you all think is related in any way or was just odd timing, but Derek Jeter stepping down as CEO of the Miami Marlins. Yeah. Did Weird. you make anything of that? I mean, there was one line in his statement, right, where he said kind of cryptically, the vision for the future of the franchise is different than the one that <sighs> yeah. I signed up to lead, which suggests that maybe he thought he was going to be given more rope and more payroll and there was some reporting about that again like Joel Sherman baseball, had something yeah, right. about that,
1: yeah.
0: Half the baseball media was in that parking lot in Florida, so they didn't have a ton of time to chase down why Derek Jeter resigned, I guess, but that was the basic idea and you know, I don't know. There's been some reporting in the past, I think, about like how Jeter's bonuses were tied to like the Marlins' payroll. And so maybe he didn't have that much incentive for them to spend at the time either. You would think that someone who like took winning for granted during his career and professed to care all the time about winning would maybe have been frustrated by the lack of investment in that roster. But who really knows? We don't know what went on behind the scenes there. I, I did think that there was a-, a tweet from Miguel Rojas of the Marlins who basically like tweeted an image of Jeter's resignation statement And said, this is what leaders do, (laughs) which I thought (laughs) leaders, (laughs) what leaders do is resign. I guess, like famously captains abandon the ship. (laughs) Hey, maybe if
1: Miguel Rojas, the de facto captain of the Marlins, had quit (laughs) in the first weekend of the 2020 season,
0: maybe
1: his entire team and the Phillies wouldn't have all gotten COVID.
0: I was going to make that same reference. (laughs) At least they made the playoffs that year. But yeah, I mean, I don't know. I guess there's a scenario where like Jeter took a principled stand and said, I cannot abide this low payroll and I'm walking. But if you're like the CEO, I mean, he wasn't the GM. Like if you're the CEO, it's kind of like your job to get him to send He's not more. the
1: CEO. He was always a puppet.
0: <laughs> yeah, I guess he was a figurehead like, with a Derek
1: small Jeter's investment. Job, but <laughs> Derek Jeter's job with the Marlins was – and I apologize for getting emotional on your very non-emotional <laughs> podcast.
3: <laughs> oh, I get emotional all the time. It's Ben who's, who's you know, focused. Yeah, some, and the comm stayed. center
1: over here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the Mr. INTJ over here. <laughs> but... His job is to keep Bruce Sherman's name out of the papers when the Marlins Mm -hmm. take in tons of tax rebates and don't spend any money and lose 95 games. That was his whole thing, was to give off the impression that he was running the show. And so, like, if it was what was reported and what Justin Turner seems to be operating under the assumption he was doing, then yeah, it's related because... Like, the problem is not necessarily the minimum salary or, or Super 2 or, or the competitive balance tax threshold. It's that there's a financial, financial incentive for most of the league not to field a competitive team. And mm-hmm. so if that's what the issue was, that the Marlins have, by hook or by crook, built a very exciting young pitching staff, they've got Jazz Chisholm, they've got, like, there's reason to be optimistic about a team that's getting outspent by their division rivals 2, 3, or 5 to 1, and Jeter's like, hey, give me $15 million so I can, like, get a decent center fielder or re-sign somebody to replace Starling Marte, and he's not getting it, then, yeah, that is the problem. That's the same issue.
0: Right, and hopefully his departure doesn't affect Kim Eng's standing there in any way, because obviously they had a pre-existing relationship. Beyond that, though, you just hope that she isn't going to be saddled with perpetually, perennially low payrolls as well. Because if so, she's going to have to get creative, and maybe that's okay, because they have two starting rotations worth of viable yeah. starters. So maybe she can make it work. But it'd be a lot easier to make it work if she could go spend some money. Of course, that's all well, contingent she might on the have lockout to ending. For a different
1: job. <laughs> Yeah, well,
0: that's what the lockout wants. would have to end for her to be able to spend some money or for the Marlins to win some games. So,
3: Well, and the other thing that we don't know yet, and I, I imagine given the current state of the industry that we're not going to see anything happen too, too quickly, but like a big part of what Jeter had to do was build up the infrastructure for that team to be remotely good and some of that meant bringing a bunch of guys who he had connections to through the Yankees like half of that player dev and R&D staff is just a transplant from the Bronx so are those people gonna stick around when Jeter is gone I don't know the answer to that so (laughs) it's not just the you know it's not just him leaving that has an impact like a lot of there's a lot of oh I'm gonna say it I'm going to say this sentence, and I want you to know that I know it sounds bad. There's a lot of Jeter DNA in that office. <laughs> <laughs> I have regrets. I have immediate regrets. Nice. No, you leave
0: a, a gift basket when he uh, left as well?
3: <laughs> I, did, I did appreciate that everyone was just like, screw it. We're doing these jokes again. They're still funny. Because guess what? They are.
0: Yeah. So I can't believe that I'm asking this, but it's a sign of the times that I've been pushed to the brink here. Mike, is there any college baseball we should be watching while we wait for the lockout to end? I mean, as we record,
1: South Carolina is losing to App State, so I'm not too happy about college baseball either. (laughs)
0: <laughs> well, speaking of uh, players who are, are not paid what they're worth, maybe, That's although, true. does does like name and likeness stuff, does that affect college baseball in any way? I mean, obviously, like athletes in other college sports are bigger celebrities whose names and likenesses are maybe worth more in most ways. But have there been college baseball players, to your knowledge, who have benefited from that?
1: There have been a couple, like I cringe to say this, I think Barstool's sponsoring a couple of college baseball players but I mean that that's definitely like a viable thing and certainly in the SEC like yeah. schools like South Carolina Mississippi State like LSU that would be huge but or not like huge like in football player huge but you can probably make a, a decent amount of money it's it's like everything with college baseball in some place in some places it could be a big deal but in most places it's probably not going to be on the radar.
2: Mm-hmm. Hey, Ben, wow. if we're spitballing here, I have a an indie ball question for the expert. Gut instinct, <laughs> because our conversation about indie ball inspired this question, just off the top of your head, no thought, what would Bryce Harper slash in Sonoma?
0: <laughs> oh, <geez. laughs> Boy, I mean, the Pacific Association doesn't even exist in the form that it used to now, so it's an entirely different league and level at this point, but back then... He'd still make outs at times just because Are of the- Are you sure? I think so. Just the nature of baseball. like Inevitably, he would hit a line drive right at someone, although at that level, not everyone catches every line drive hit right at them, especially <laughs> if it's 120 miles per hour, as it probably would be if Bryce Harper were hitting at that level. But yeah, I he might hit like... <laughs> he'd probably hit like... Six, 600, 700, maybe, I, I would say. And uh, how much would he get walked? Well, yeah, that's the that's the issue is he'd probably and he probably should just be walked <laughs> in every plate appearance. Every like time. the the peak Bonds treatment time. would actually make sense statistically for Bryce Harper at that level, I would think. But See, yeah, he a- would be scary.
2: Effectively Wild can still have random hypothetical <laughs> questions that fit the podcast that are yeah. actually
0: <laughs> relevant to the lockout. Oh, yeah, we can keep going here, and we will somehow. <laughs> but all right. Well, this was not a, a full college baseball preview episode, but I gave you a chance there. If you want to shout out a couple storylines that this is a sincere offer because people will be desperate for baseball in the United States, and there won't be a whole lot of it, at least until the Meyer league start and indie ball.
1: Yeah, I mean, the thing is a lot of the, the big programs – I don't have a schedule in front of me, so I can't like point out which – like, what games to watch this weekend. But, like, a lot of the, the they're still a non-conference, so you're not getting the big, right. juicy matchups. And a lot of, like, teams like Indiana went down, got absolutely got their clock cleaned. Although the Penn took a, a series yeah. from Texas A&M at Texas A&M this weekend. They so. sure
3: did. Rallied in one of those games, too. It was fun.
1: Yeah, so the uh so we're not getting the Phillies at the Astros to to start the big <laughs> league season, but we got the college baseball equivalent and that turned out pretty good for the home team or for I guess my home team.
0: Mhm. Well, if we get to the point where you're preparing quizzes for me about college baseball player names and I actually <laughs> know the answers, that would be a bad sign for MLB because it well, would I'm mean like,
3: <laughs> This is the thing, Ben. The names alone just Oh, the
0: names are, are great.
3: Just... Just the names, Ben, are, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I sound like I, it's like a total stoner Meg talk, but it's like, have you heard about these human names, man? Like, have you heard (laughs) about what humans call their kids? Some of these names are great.
0: Yeah. Yeah. All right. We forgot to mention, by the way, that the international draft also snuck into the last day or two of negotiations. It's I, been
3: there the whole time. I don't it's, understand. It's been why around. I, yeah, it, it, people it, it, are it. acting like this is new. They've been wanting an international draft since the beginning yeah. of the negotiations. We just assumed that, like the domestic amateur draft, the parameters of it would get punted until the CBA is actually agreed to, because that's exactly how much they care about either draft.
0: Yeah, I'd love to know just how important like the draft lottery is to the players, actually, because they do seem to be pushing for it. And they tentatively, it seemed had agreed on the first five picks being lottery picks. But it just seems almost beside the point, at least if this is an anti-tanking measure, like teams in baseball are not tanking for draft picks, at least not anymore. So if the Players Association is spending any of its leverage on that, I just I don't get it really
1: it doesn't deter tanking in basketball where it actually works Mm. like it's beyond eyewash I, i find that just so frustrating that we're gonna have it and we're gonna have like if you make me do math to figure out who's going to have the number one pick next year. That's just so impolite. I'm not not happy about it.
2: <laughs> Michael, against math, against business, against law.
1: Yeah, that's going to be my the slogan for my U.S. Senate campaign. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, you're going to
3: win.
1: Yeah, I'm going to kick Cory Booker's ass. <laughs>
0: All right. Well, it sounds like, what, is the consensus if we were all forced to predict, and of course I famously hate predicting, but when I have been asked to predict, and Meg, you made me predict fairly I recently, did. I think, and, and well, what did like, I say? Like
3: you like making other people predict, so it felt like yeah, the turntable should be turned. I as feel
0: hypocritical when I do that, and I should stop doing that, but when you made me pick, I said, maybe we miss April, right? And yeah, I think that's right. I, I guess that's still what I'm sticking to. Like yeah. I, I really wish... I wish we had. I was
1: telling Zach and Bobby this the other day that, like, I wish we had done a day by day like Bayesian. Uh, <laughs> I thought you hated math. Don't trot out the word Bayesian here.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: I know things that I hate, Zach. But like, it would have been really fun to, to go back and, and look at, at our the way our perception of this has changed throughout the, yes. the winter. Yes. Yeah. Yes.
0: Yeah. Because I definitely hoped that we could avoid <laughs> where we are now. So this is sad, but. I told you yesterday Mike I sent you a picture of my daughter wearing the onesie that you Yay! gifted her with Lance Lynn on it and that's the only time I'm going to be seeing Lance Lynn as well unfortunately but sadly and symbolically that onesie was pooped on today <laughs> and so it is temporarily out of the rotation but that feels appropriate because that is well, I'm basically glad she what the felt is in the Lance <laughs> Lynn onesie <laughs> Yeah, no, she is. Uh, it's for six months and she is not quite six months. And it's pretty voluminous, as you would expect, for an article of clothing that yeah, bears the, the body of Lance Lynn. They only
1: make Lance Lynn stuff so small. Like. It's good.
0: She can grow into it eventually, but nice to at least see Lance. That's how starved I am for MLP these days is that your crush, Lance Lynn, I'm happy to see him. I'm happy to talk about college baseball. We'll do whatever it takes. But it's been good to talk to you guys again. It's been quite a while and i'm sorry that we couldn't be joined by our ringer mlb show producer bobby wagner who was moving today and he could have uh, brought in another podcast crossover to (laughs) tipping pitches his show here he was unavailable but he would have supplied probably even more anti-owner invective than we mustered today but we did okay i'm so so proud of bobby (laughs) i taught him everything he knows (laughs) all right well thank you guys and i hope that i get to talk to you on a podcast again sometime soon yeah
1: we could see if the uh if the ringer f1 show with me and meg schuster ever gets (laughs) off the ground
0: All right, that will do it for today. Thanks, as always, for listening, and thanks to Zach and Michael for joining us. Always fun to talk to those guys, even if the circumstances aren't the best. You can find Michael on Twitter at Michael Bauman, and Zach on Twitter at Zach Cram. Isn't that easy? And you can find their and my writing, mostly not about baseball these days, at theringer.com. One thing I meant to mention, I don't know whether you picked up on this too, but there seemed to be some difference in mood when comparing Clark and Manfred in their respective press conferences. Clark seemed somber. He said it was a sad day for baseball. Manfred seemed almost jocular, at least by his standards. Which doesn't matter that much, really. Actions speak louder than words or expressions. so he could have been sobbing for all the difference it made. As long as he was up there canceling games he didn't have to cancel, the way he did it wouldn't have mattered all that much. But it still seemed somewhat discordant. If you're a commissioner, canceling games should be one of the worst things you have to do. And he was sort of smiling and joking. Maybe it's insignificant, but it didn't quite capture the severity of the situation. It also occurred to me as I was watching the State of the Union address timely after we recorded. wonder how it's decided that the commissioner gets to go first and then the Players Association gets to go second. With the State of the Union, it makes sense that the president delivers the speech and then the opposing party delivers the rebuttal. With a labor situation, it could go either way. I suppose if you are the side that is canceling games and you are the side that imposed the lockout, it would also make sense for you to speak first. But in theory, that shouldn't always be the case. It's just a function of the fact that the commissioner is kind of a celebrity, is seen as a spokesperson for the game, even though it's a very partisan position. now I'll leave you with this quote from former Effectively Wild guest Ross Stripling, who is the Blue Jays player rep. Now, the union statement that was published on Twitter said that the lockout is the culmination of a decades-long attempt by owners to break our player fraternity. Stripling, speaking about the negotiations Monday night and Tuesday morning, said, It got to be like 12.30 and the fine print of their CBT proposal was stuff we had never seen before. They were trying to sneak things through us. It was like they think we're dumb baseball players and we get sleepy after midnight or something. It's like that stupid football quote, they are who we thought they were. They did exactly what we thought they would do. They pushed us to a deadline that they imposed and then they tried to sneak some shit past us at that deadline and we were ready for it we've been ready for five years and then they tried to flip it on us today in pr saying that we've changed our tone and tried to make it look like it was our fault that never happened that quote was reported by shy davidi at sportsnet so that's one side of the story but given what we've seen doesn't sound especially implausible. We'll probably have a bit more lockout and bargaining-related coverage on the podcast later this week. Maybe we will try to talk to someone who was actually on the scene for those scintillating sights of executives striding back and forth to exchange proposals. Maybe we can hear a bit more about how it all went down or didn't. In the meantime, you can support us on Patreon by going to patreon.com effectivelywild. We really do appreciate that so many of you have stuck with us throughout the lockout. We can get through this thing together eventually, and the following five listeners have already signed up to pledge some monthly or yearly amount to help keep the podcast going and help us stay ad-free while getting themselves access to some perks. Logan Carlson, John Cho, Jimmy Schmetta, Daniel Keegan, and Justin Kusan, thanks to all of you. If you're looking for something non-lockout related, you can catch me and Meg on the February Patreon bonus pod that we recorded and published earlier this week. Drafted technologies that we take for granted in our daily lives That would have blown our minds when we were kids Or would not have been available at all So that was fun, a non-baseball related draft for you You can get access to all of the monthly bonus pods that we have recorded As well as other perks like the Effectively Wild patron-only Discord group Again, by signing up at patreon.com slash effectivelywild You can also all join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash effectivelywild you can rate review and subscribe to effectively wild on itunes and spotify and other podcast platforms keep your questions and comments for me and meg coming via email at podcast at fancrafts.com or via the patreon messaging system if you are a supporter you can follow effectively wild on twitter at the you can also browse the effectively wild subreddit at r slash effectively wild Thanks to Dylan Higgins for his editing and production assistance. Check the show page, as always, for links to a lot of the stories we discussed, including Michael's columns and statements by the Players Association and the League, and we will be back with another episode a little later this week. Talk to you then.
1: Stand My the Baby, the and the 1997 Pontiac Astro Wagon goes to the fan sitting
0: in seat number
2: 0001 C. Montgomery Burns.
0: <gasps> yeah! And the fans do not like this one bit. And
2: here come the pretzels. No, no, don't do that. You're supposed to be tasting them.
0: Hall of Famer Whitey Ford now on the field, pleading with the crowd for, for some kind of sanity. Uh-oh, in a barrage of pretzels now knocking Whitey unconscious. Wow, this is, uh... This is a black day for baseball.